on it now. Well, good evening, everyone. It is so good to see you here, and I'm glad it's a slightly smaller group because I do want to make this more interactive. You know, when it's a big group, it's, it's very difficult to kind of have a conversation. So it does make my life a bit easier if we have a conversation. So tonight, the heading is important. It's called the Old Testament prophets. So we're not talking about New Testament prophecy today. That can wait for another day. Um, and I've stressed, and they're prophesying, because I want to focus tonight more on how they prophesied and what the role of a prophet was uh, in ancient Israel. So I'm also not here to give you a list of the prophets. I could have easily just pulled, you know, here's the 28 names of everybody who prophesied, where they were born, when they lived, who they focused on. So that's not what tonight's talk is about. It's very much about what it was like to be a prophet. Um, and I'm hoping that tonight it might just shift some of your thinking around what, what the prophets were like, because they were, they were very interesting characters. I mean, some of them were as poor as anything. I think uh, Amos, you know, he was a very poor farmer. Isaiah apparently was the grandson of a king. So there was the whole range of, of people involved. But let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get stuck into it. And another thing I want to say is that I've got, I'll have a full PDF of just about everything I'll say tonight. So you don't have to worry about taking notes. I'll post it tomorrow morning, um, as well as the audio, hopefully. Right. Father God, as we, as we meet tonight to to think about the Old Testament prophets. We pray that you would be with us, Lord. Please make your presence felt here. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us a, a deeper understanding of what prophetic ministry was like in the Old Testament. Uh, speak to us tonight, Lord. Help us to be attentive. Help me to be wise in what I say and how I say it. So we just welcome you here, Lord, and, and pray for your blessing upon tonight's session. In Jesus' name. Right, so here we go. Right, the importance of the Old Testament prophets. And I'm going to have a lot of verses, and they'll, they'll all be on the screen, because I really want this to be scripturally, scripturally heavy, as it were. So Hebrews 1 is, is just looking back at, at the Old Testament, and the writer makes the point, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. And then he says it many times and in various ways. And there were many prophets, some we don't even know their names. Sometimes they're just referred to as the man of God. Other times they've written huge books. Um, Peter also talks about the Old Testament prophets in, in his second letter. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, trying to make sense of something. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there is this divine side to prophecy, as well as a very human side, but of course we're focusing on the divine side. And fundamentally, 
I think we can sum it up with these five statements. The, the whole of the Old Testament has been produced by the prophets. In other words, anybody that really wrote anything in the Old Testament was a prophet. If they wrote a psalm, well, some of the proverbs are just collections of what people said and did, like King Lemur and other people. But fundamentally, the Old Testament was written by prophets. The prophets established the Old Covenant, particularly Moses, and that's why he got to show up at the Transfiguration with Elijah. The, the Old Testament prophets, that was the Bible that Jesus had. You know, when Jesus was 12 years old and went off to the temple to study the Scriptures, it was the prophets of the Old Testament that he was reading. The, the prophets of the Old Testament were the Scriptures of the early church. You know, many of the Gospels were written decades after the early church was established. I mean, some of the Gospels were written in the 50s. Um, I don't want to quote dates now in case I get it wrong. Uh, John's Gospel was the last one to be written. So really, the Old Testament prophecies, that was the Bible of the early church for the first 20 years or so. And there's this great verse in Ephesians 2 where we're told that the prophets of the Old Testament, along with the 12 apostles, are the foundation of the church. So there you have it, that verse, just talking about the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that is referring, in my understanding, to the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so if anyone's got a comment or a question, please just raise your hand. Just keep it short, and we can perhaps address your your concern, but if it's going to come up later, then we won't. For those of you that arrived late, there is there are full, full notes will be given out at the end. Right, some of the Old Testament terminology when it comes to prophets. The oldest name for a prophet was a seer, and they were called seers because they saw stuff. Now that they, they were seers. They saw that which other people didn't see. They saw that which was invisible. They could see what God was doing. Later on, the term prophet kind of overtakes the term seer as the, the most popular term. And uh, the, the word prophet actually means the one who is called. Other terms for prophets would be man of God or messenger of the Lord. So that's what, what prophets were called. When it comes to the, the role of the prophet, uh, we kind of think today of prophets, you know, they either write books or they do podcasts or they get up in church and prophesy over people. Okay, so we need to get that idea of what the prophet is out of our minds when we're thinking about Old Testament prophets. Because... The, one of the key ways in which prophets fulfilled their function was to serve in the courts of the king. And in fact, certain prophets worked with particular kings. And they, they were part of the leadership of the Old Testament, which consisted of three groups of people, prophets, priests, and kings. And of course, the priests all had to be Levites, but the prophets could be anybody as could the kings be. So, so prophets tended to hang around the courts of the king, and, and, and they were almost like the king's cabinet, which in some cases be a one-man cabinet like with Samuel, and he outlived numerous kings. Um, the prophets were, 
were advisors to the king. You know, would, hey, prophet, like these people down the road are giving us a lot of trouble. I think we should go and attack them. Does God say we're going to win this, this battle? You know, and then the prophet would come back, okay, it's good, no, don't do it, whatever. The, the prophets were also political, economic, and judicial figures. Uh, and I'll give you a great example of that, would be Deborah, of course. Um, I think the prophets were also counselors. You know, even kings need therapists. Um, and I think of David, who, who was functioning in the court of, of King Saul. Um, and the Holy Spirit was upon David, and whenever Saul was in a bad mood, David would kind of sing prophetic songs and do his thing, and then Saul would feel better. And this was, funnily enough, how, how prophets functioned. Not, not always. We, we're getting to the other. They were also preachers, etc., etc. But they were definitely strategic people that served as counselors and leadership in the courts of the king. Before we have kings in the Old Testament, we had judges, the period of the judges. It's described as the time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Um, and then things would go bad, and then the Lord would appoint a particular individual to kind of give leadership to, to the nation. And Deborah was one such person that the Lord raised up. We read about her in Judges 4. She's described not as a seer, but as a prophetess. And she was leading Israel at that time. She held court. That's what prophets did. Uh, they didn't live up poles or in monasteries. They were right there in the action. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So if you had a problem with uh, your neighbor or and whatever your legal issue is, you would also go to the prophet um, and they would, they would hopefully sort you out. Here's another example of a prophet and Elijah. Elijah's relationship with Ahab broke down. And there was, I don't want to say a mutual hatred, but certainly Ahab hated Elijah. And Elijah spent most of his time hiding from Ahab because Ahab was a really terrible person. Um, and every now and again, Elijah would just pop up out of nowhere and sort of really shock Ahab. And on one occasion in 1 Kings 18, he pops up out of nowhere, even though they've been looking for him. Because when the king wasn't serving God, then you didn't really want the prophet around um, because he's always telling you what you're doing is wrong. So Ahab's nickname for Elijah is the troubler of Israel. In other words, Here's a prophet, and he's regarded as a troublemaker. Obviously, Ahab is far from God, so he hates Elijah, um, and they had this very uh, tense relationship. So prophets were, were courtiers, advisors, uh, and, and judicial people half the time. Okay, of course they also preached. Uh, they would preach in the temple, uh, they would minister to people, but the prophets would also preach in the marketplace, and we're going to get to this, and it's, it's amazing what they did to get people's attention. So again, we mustn't think of prophets operating in a, in a church or internal context. They would walk around and chat to people and engage with people uh, in the streets half the time. 
And some of their sermons would be prepared sermons, and they would preach the same sermon again and again and again. You couldn't stick it on YouTube and hope people would download it. You know, and you could only speak to 50 people at a time because, you know, the population was sparse in many areas. So the, Isaiah would literally walk around and preach his same sermon again and again and again. And the great sermons are recorded in his book, you know, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 52 to 54, all of these great things. These were sermons that Isaiah preached um, as he walked around. And then, of course, what would a prophet be without prophetic actions? Okay, so prophets didn't just talk about God. They did stuff to, to get people's attention. And uh, I've got some great examples for you, and you'll find this quite exciting, hopefully. So let me explain to you how prophetic actions worked. And I've picked some of the best ones, I think. Um, in Jeremiah 13... We read, this is what the Lord said to me, go and buy a linen belt. You could also say, go and buy a new pair of underpants. Okay, it's like Bible euphemism. So I bought a belt, all this kind of linen thing that goes around the waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take your belt that you're wearing around your waist and go down and hide it in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and I hid the, the belt, my underpants. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now and get the, the undergarment that I told you to hide. And he does that. And he says, but now it's ruined and completely useless. And then for the next weeks or months, he'd be waving around his belt saying, you see my useless belt here? That's what you people are all like. Okay, and that, that was the message. Just getting some inspiration here for next Sunday. Okay. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord said. In the same way as this undergarment has been ruined, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's one way to kind of get your message across as, as a prophet. Here's another uh, for those of you that like working with clay, you'll like this one. Here's Ezekiel chapter 4. Take a clay tablet and draw on the clay tablet the city of Jerusalem. And then get out your toy soldiers and, and make a ramp up the side of it. And then when everybody's looking at what this weird guy is doing, kind of bash the soldiers into the clay. Okay, I'm slightly... Um, paraphrasing here, lay a siege to your little model of a clay tablet. Okay, it gets even better. Verse 3, then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face. And again, this is, this is the prophet, his message, he's acting out the, the message. And, and this is how they communicated with people. This is kind of where we get memes from. Okay, but it gets better or worse if you're the prophet. I wonder if this is the same chapter. Yes, this is also Ezekiel 4. Now lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house. 
after you've finished it, lie down again. And then God gave him a turn to lie on his right side. So he would literally be lying around in the street. Um, so when people walked past, they would say, well, what's going on here? And then he would say, well, God's saying, you know, this is the message. Okay, but it, it gets even weirder. Then Ezekiel gets told, um, I, verse 12, I want you to, to bake bread in the sight of all the people using human excrement for fuel. Yeah, okay. Is this new to some of you? <laughs> okay, just read it. That's why it, it definitely is there. So, so Ezekiel is, is as upset as you are. So he said, no, Lord, not so. Verse 14, sovereign Lord, I've never defiled myself from my youth. I've never eaten anything unclean, you know, etc. It would be unclean to cook, cook that way. So God says, all right, then, I will let you bake your bread over cow, cow manure instead of human excrement. And what's this prophetic action about? It's again, Elijah, who are we even talking about? Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel. Well, it, it gets explained. He's showing the people that they're unclean before God, and he's doing all these attention-grabbing things to get his message across. Uh, God also told Ezekiel to cut his hair, um, and that that too was going to be a prophetic action. Um, Isaiah um, kind of also walked around half naked. It, it, it's difficult to really, maybe he was also walking around in his underpants. Isaiah 20 verse 2b, this is, the Lord says, this is, the Lord spoke through Isaiah. He said, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the, the king of Assyria will be led away stripped and barefoot. Well, it gets even more interesting. Um, young and old with their buttocks bared. Okay, so there's Isaiah walking around in his hospital gown, <laughs> buttocks bared. Um, once again, this is a prophetic action, getting people's attention and getting his message across. Right, let me just check where I am in the notes. Oh, there's one more. One more little prophetic action, Ezekiel 12. Ezekiel was obviously really into this kind of ministry. Um, in Ezekiel 12, he gets to act this whole thing of packing his suitcase, getting ready for a trip, digging a little hole in a wall, shoving his stuff in there. And again, this is all just a picture of how the people are going to have to pack their bags and go through the wall and leave Okay. Any questions on prophetic actions? Has anyone got a better one than the ones I've shared today? <laughs> what, what? Oh, one question. Okay. That you just explained. 
were they just counselors for the government or for the king or for the judge or and also were they telling the people around in Israel yeah, I, I don't think this was done in the courts, although maybe Ezekiel would have found a good place to lie. Two sites. Okay, they were counselors, advisors. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Yep. Preachers, yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm that's how they operated. Oh. <laughs> Oh, definitely. I mean, most of the prophecies were about the future. Um, a lot of the prophecies were about, you know, God is not happy with you and this nation is going to come and destroy first Israel. That happened. Then Judah, the people didn't believe it would happen, but it did. So the prophets would prepare the people and godly people would listen to the prophets and then be saved from trouble. Um, and sometimes the prophet, the king who wasn't walking with God, he would say, well, I'm going to enter into an alliance with Egypt, you know, with the Pharaoh. We're going to be partners here. And the prophets say, don't do that. Not a good idea. Uh, you know, you're picking the wrong side. Um, so so that, that kind of stuff happened. Okay. The, the prophets all got a call to be a prophet. People didn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a prophet. Um, at the center of being a prophet was this concept of being called by God. You couldn't appoint yourself. And there's some, there's some beautiful, and this is a much more positive, warmer, inspirational part of my talk. But let's just take a look at how, how Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. Because all the prophets had their calls. Some are recorded in the Bible, some are not. Um, so Jeremiah 1, verse 1, just gives some context. But this is the word that comes to Jeremiah. And he's a youngster. I think he's probably a teenager. Um, in fact, could even be younger because people kind of used to marry at, you know, 13, 14 years of age. I mean, when they hit puberty, you'd, you'd marry off. Um, so, yeah, he's probably a young teenager. The word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, Jeremiah, I set you apart. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And typically, he doesn't buy it. Oh, oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. In the Hebrew, it's probably more like a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said, Now I've put my words in your mouth. See today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. 
So that's Jeremiah's call. I'm sure you're all familiar with, with Samuel's call, the little boy. Gee, God seems to pick him young. Uh, here's a little boy, you know, working uh, in the temple, and he hears, hears a voice at night, and he runs to Samuel. Oh, did you call? Here I am. What can I do for you? But we know it's the Lord. Here's Isaiah's call in chapter 6. He sees this. He's obviously worshiping somewhere. I'm not sure if he is in the temple, if it's just a vision of the temple. Um, but he, he sees this incredible vision of God high and lifted up. Uh, he sees the seraphim, which were snake-like creatures, believe it or not, with six wings. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah hears the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. And there's that whole thing of God touching his, his lips with, with a burning coal and, and preparing him for, for ministry. There's one lovely story that I do want to include. El Dad and Me Dad. You all know about El the Dads. El and Me Dad. <laughs> this is such a great story. Basically, Moses is needing a little bit of help with, with running the country. So he's got 70 elders, and it's time to kind of empower these guys and, and for them to be anointed and equipped for ministry. This is Numbers 11. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took the spirit that was on Moses and put the Spirit on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So there's this impartation, whatever we're to make of that. There's almost the symbolic action of Moses who was anointed. The anointing, the Spirit is taken from Moses and shared with these 70 elders. And the result is that they start to prophesy. And we need to have a very broad understanding of the word prophesy. It means to do stuff because you moved by the Spirit. So for some that would have meant worshiping, for others declaring the wonders of God like at what happened at Pentecost. But the, the funny thing about this story, which I so love, is that there were two guys that didn't make the meeting. Because there's always people that never show up. El dead and me dead. <laughs> they, they missed the memo. They were late. They weren't, they weren't there. They were listed among the elders but did not go to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them. So they were kind of at home, you know, doing the gardening, cooking supper. And while Moses is imparting the Spirit that is on him to the 68 elders, these guys suddenly receive... Um, and anointing from God as well uh, for leadership. So do you see the sovereign work of God here in calling people and equipping people for ministry? And of course, there's a tale. A young man ran and told Moses, El Dad and me Dad are prophesying in the camp. Oh, Moses, my Lord, stop them. This is terrible. You know, they weren't part of the proper group. And now they're prophesying. 
Moses says, are you jealous? Do you think I'm intimidated that other people are also prophesying? Not at all. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. So Moses is quite excited about the fact that even though Eldad and Medad weren't there, they still were anointed to prophesy. Next section, we're going to talk about how they prophesied, how prophecy happened. But any, any question, I can't even remember what I've just been talking about. What was that again? As the words are out my mouth, I forget them. What were we talking about? Oh, that everyone had a call. <laughs> any questions on the, on the call of the prophet? Okay. You've got to be quick, otherwise I move quickly. How did the, the prophetic happen? And this is, this is quite interesting as well. There's a lovely story in, in Numbers chapter 12. And this is where Miriam and Aaron began to complain about Moses because they don't think his wife is up to scratch. Because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Skanda. So that's kind of in the back of their thinking. So now they start getting all critical about Moses. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Who is this Moses to think he's such a big shot? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Moses was a very humble man. And then the Lord speaks. I think before, after he strikes Miriam with leprosy for complaining. And what the Lord says is very insightful because it explains to us how people prophesied, how it worked. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him or her in visions. I speak to him or her in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. Um, and that kind of puts them in line, and there you can see that there's some punishment vetted out for being mean to Moses. But let's just focus again on verse 7. So I think this, this helps us to understand how, how prophecy worked. Moses was a unique prophet. I mean, who else got to spend 30 days with God on a mountain repeatedly? I mean, Moses had a unique relationship like no one else. In fact, that's what it's saying here. Other prophets, God would speak to them in visions. In other words, you see something, but you're not always sure exactly what it means. Or there's a dream, but you've still got to pray about, well, what does the dream mean? There's, there's often a lack of clarity for us mortals. Or God speaks to us in riddle. He kind of just puts a thing in your mind and it won't go away and you think about it and confuses you and then after a while you oh, I get it what God is saying so that's how it worked for the for all the prophets but not for Moses I think he was a, a very special guy so they also had this very interesting phrase the word of the Lord came to me some people would say well this was Jesus the word of the Lord 
would have kind of appear to the prophets, but they'd be minding their own business, and suddenly the word of the Lord would come to them. Here's an example from Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1.11, the word of the Lord came to me. A thought comes into his mind. What do you see, Jeremiah? He's looking into his garden. I see the branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I'm watching over to see that my word is fulfilled. That's a pun in the Hebrew, um, which you don't pick up in the English, obviously. But I think there's something about the word almond tree and watching that God is speaking to him through this pun. And then again, he, he maybe sees somebody cooking. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. God's asking questions. What do you see? And he says, I see a boiling pot. There's a poiki. And, and, and it's tipping slightly away from the north. And God says, you see that poiki? And it's some of the boiling waters leaking out to the north. Well, that's what's going to happen to my people. From the north, the Assyrians... They're going to come out and like that boiling water, come and declares the Lord. There's also this wonderful phrase, standing in the counsel of the Lord. Jeremiah 23 is all about false prophecy, and we're going to look at that in a while. But there's this phrase, Jeremiah says, you don't have to be a false prophet. He says, who of these guys has stood in the counsel of the Lord? In other words, wait on God, meditate, be in prayer, listen to the Lord. Who has listened and heard? I did not send these people. Verse 22 is important. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. In other words, even these false prophets... If only they had taken the trouble to seek God's face, to spend time in prayer, to wait on God, God would have given him his words for the people. God spoke to the prophets through dreams and visions. God would often speak to people that weren't even Christian, that weren't even righteous. Think of the Pharaoh and the fat cows and the thin cows and the, the thin cows eating the fat cows and still being thin. Yeah, I wish that could happen to me. You know, eat as much as you want and you're still thin. So sometimes even people that weren't walking with God would get a prophetic word. And then they would have to have help to interpret the prophetic word. A theophany is the fancy theological term for God showing up. And uh, you think of the time two men came to Abraham and they heard Sarah laughing and she said, but I didn't laugh. And they said, yes, but you did. And all of that. There were angelic visits. How many of you know about the Urim and the Thummim? You do. Okay, good. Anybody have a set? The last time they used the Urim and the Thummim was uh, when they needed to replace Judas Iscariot. And they cast lots, remember. But maybe they didn't use the Urim and the Thummim. 
So the Urim and the Thummim mum, were two little square blocks that sat in the blue breastplate of the high priest. And you read about it here in Exodus 28, verse 30. So put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate, uh, that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will be able to bear the means of making decisions for the Israelite over his heart. So this is really crazy stuff for us today. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying you can work out the next lottery winning number using this technique. But they would kind of have yes and no, for want of a better explanation, on each block. And then you would toss the, the dice, as it were. And if you got two yeses, well, God was saying yes. If you got two noes, God was saying no. If you got a yes and a no, it was, okay, God's not speaking to me today. Okay, so this really is crazy stuff for us as New Testament Christians, but it's totally legit. This is what they did. And there's that one great story in uh, 21 Samuel um, about how they're trying to find out who the, who the person, the culprit is that's caused them to lose the battle. And so they're, they're throwing lots the whole time. Oh, it's Jonathan and Saul. Oh, okay, now which one is it? Is it Saul or it's Jonathan? And that's when he'd eaten the honey and now he must die. And it was a whole stupid thing that went on there because Saul was losing the plot in a big way by that time. Right, now we come to something very interesting, and that is ecstatic experiences. And you'll be pleased to know that I don't think Old Testament prophets had many ecstatic experiences. Um, and even the ones they did have, well, we're going to look at them right now. But, but prophecy within, among God's people was a, was a rational, was a, was a, people were, were not crazy when they were doing it, or in some kind of hectic trance-like, you know, like we sometimes see in, in, in Hinduism, for example. But, but there certainly were some kind of very unusual experiences, and I'll share some of them with you now. There's, there's this situation where Samuel anoints Saul's head and says, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And of course, Saul didn't particularly want to be uh, the king or anything like that. He was out looking for donkeys, and he gets ambushed by Samuel and told, okay, you're the, you're the next king. So I don't think he was really looking for, for the job. And then Samuel says, oh, okay, I've, I've anointed you now with oil, and you know, it was just a prophetic action to show that you're special and you're marked out and this represents the Spirit. But go for a walk, Saul, and um, you're going to run into a bunch of prophets. And uh, something's going to happen to you when you do. And this is what God says. Go to Gibeah, and you're going to meet a procession of the prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played, and they're going to be prophesying. Once again, these are people filled with the Spirit 
speaking God's truth, worshiping God. And Saul, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you, and you're going to be changed into a different person. And then once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, because God is with you. He's going to get empowered by God. So Saul uh, is like, oh, okay, cool, all right, give it, if you say so. Um, And it all happens to him. Verse 10, when they arrive at Gibeah, they meet these, these prophets, and the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and now he joins in the prophesying. This is Saul. He's like, now he's going to be the king, and now he's prophesying. It's all very exciting. And people can't believe it. They're saying, what's going on here? What's happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also now one of the prophets? Is, is that what's going on? But Saul didn't prophesy much after that. Then he stopped prophesying, verse 13, and carried on with his life. What do you make of that story? But it gets, uh huh? I'm getting to that now. Very good. Okay, because the story gets even more exciting. The next slide. 1 Samuel 19. Jonathan and David were best of friends, and they had covenanted with each other, and Saul hated David because he was so anointed. And so, so Jonathan has this inside information. My father's trying to kill you, David. You better run and hide. And you know they do the whole thing with shooting arrows and all that stuff. Um, here's David ministering in, in the house of Saul, playing his harp. Saul tries to kill him, verse 10. Not a very nice guy, but I want you to note that. So Saul is genuinely trying to kill David, okay? Not a sign of a person who's under the influence of the Spirit. So the word comes to Saul, David is hiding in Naoth at Ramah. So he sends people to capture David. These are like tough soldiers. They go to, we're going to fetch David and we're going to kill him. Ah, but God's got another thing in store for them. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing there, the Spirit of God came upon Saul men and they also prophesied. So that was the end of the mission because they're too busy worshiping. So then they go back to Saul and say, look, you know, we just were worshiping and we didn't catch David. Uh, So they send more soldiers off to kill David. Same thing happens. They send a third lot off to kill David. Same thing happens. Finally, Saul says, you guys are so pathetic, um, I'm going to go myself and kill David. Verse 23, so Saul went off, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying. He stripped off his robes. And he prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and night. So here's this kind of power encounter that happens to Saul. And I want you to notice that his heart is not right with God. But but he is overcome by the presence of God and what's going on in the hearts and in the ministry of these prophets kind of overflows into his life. Now, isn't that an interesting story? 
there was this group called the School of the Prophets. Um, and we read about them. In fact, we've read. They were like this band of 50 people that kind of did a lot of prophesying. They worked with Elisha and Elijah and, 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 and Samuel. Okay, I just need a 30-second break. So maybe someone wants to make a comment or, or ask a question on something we've covered so far. Johan. Johan, I don't think we can answer that because we don't know enough. They're just the occasional reference to the school of the prophets. But I think there were probably a number of schools of the prophets around the, the place. Um, whether there was a building and desks and a whiteboard, I, I'm probably not. But, <laughs> but there would have been some kind of headquarters where people went to grow in the prophetic. The University of the Prophets. <laughs> Yo, Rion. Okay, yep. Those are the only that ones that I know of. And I get the sense that this is happening to Saul against his will. For a king to strip of his clothes and to lie on the ground for 12 hours through the night worshiping God, it seemed to be something unusual and quite powerful happening to him. But it, we're told very clearly it was the Spirit of the Lord. No, no, the, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we, we don't really, on the, on the day of Pentecost, there's a similar thing, although it's not like non-Christians are coming under being filled with the Spirit. So it, it's an unusual thing, but it's a fascinating story, and it's, it's there. Jason? Okay, so we're just talking Old Testament now. It, it, I can't get into New Testament because that just opens up too many questions we can't address. But certainly there was the, the one-hit wonder prophet in the Old Testament. You know, it's just a great guy like, boom, like had a word from God. And then there were the, the, the consummate professionals, you know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah although everyone hated Jeremiah. You know, Jonah was a bit of a one-hit wonder, you know, rocked up at Nineveh, the whole city repents. Um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> I think it's all equally legitimate. And the funny thing is that we don't even know the names of some of these guys. But I've still got uh, some great stories to tell, and it's only 10 to 8. So work with me here. Okay, I want to talk to you about the inner struggles of the prophets. The inner struggles of the prophets. Because I sometimes think we put biblical characters on a pedestal. You know what I mean? We always think they're so fantastic. But, but they're really just like us most of the time. 
So let me, let me take you through the, the inner struggles of the prophet, and I hope this, this ministers to your heart a bit. Um, so, so you can read this at your leisure in the PDF that I'll send out, but, so I'm just going to touch on this because I do want to get through all the material, and we should you know, probably only take another 20 minutes perhaps, although don't hold me to that. There's the whole episode of Elijah experiencing depression in, in 1 Kings 19. You know, Jezebel's out to get him. Um, he's fearful. He thinks, I'm the only one left. Nobody else loves God. It's just me left. He's having a huge pity party. So he sits down under a tree, third from the bottom line, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Gee, that's a very proud statement right there. I'm no better than my ancestors. The implication is I should be so much better than but I'm no better. Anyway, whatever it means, here's poor old Elijah feeling so sorry for himself. He wants God to take his life. And then God encounters him. It's a great story about how God speaks. Uh, it's the story about, okay, I'm going to hide you in this hole in the rock, and this massive wind comes. Okay, but that wasn't God speaking to me. Then the earthquakes. Okay, that's also not God. Then there's a fire. Also not God. After the fire came a gentle whisper, and that was God. And, and then God sort of builds him up again. Uh, here's another person who was not very happy. Moses, Exodus 32, after the golden calf. You know how God can bless us with things, and then we use that blessing to turn against God? It was all the gold that they were given when they left Egypt as a blessing, as, as money, as reparations for their slave labor. It was that gold that they used to make the golden calf. Moses has had it. Lord, please forgive their sin, but if you're not going to forgive their sin, blot me out of the book you've written. We all know why Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. Why was that? Anger. He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. By the way, and this is a harsh thing for me to say, but, but it's like God seemed to have pretty much zero tolerance for the prophet's disobeying him. Um, there was some pretty harsh stuff. Here's a, a lovely existential problem. Jeremiah chapter 20, he's like, in the Hebrew, he uses the word seduced. Once again, the Bible kind of softens it a little bit so we're not too offended. Jeremiah 20, O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everybody mocks me. When I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction, I tell the people judgment's coming. The, so the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day. So Jeremiah really feels like God's twisted his arm and he is a prophet and he's got this word that he has to share, but he doesn't want to share it. 
and he's venting a little bit to God. And then in verse 29, he says, but if I say to myself, I, won't, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And that's what every true prophet feels. Sometimes you might not even like to be a prophet. And God's given you stuff to say that you don't want to say. But it's like a fire in your bones. And, and it's a massive burden to you to keep it in and to keep it yourself. And you've got to speak it out. And everyone mocks you and hates you and ridicules you. But that's sometimes the life of the prophet. I hear many whispering, it goes on. Report him, report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip saying perhaps he will be deceived and then we'll prevail over him and take our revenge on him. And this is God's number one prophet in Judah at the time. Jeremiah goes on to say, Cursed be the day I was born. Cursed be the man who brought news to my father that a child has been born to you. Oh, he didn't kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Isn't this amazing? This is like, I mean, Jeremiah probably was one of the greatest prophets. He's called the weeping prophet. That's why people thought, Jesus, maybe you're this Jeremiah guy back. So it was tough to be a prophet, folks. Let's not think it was all glamorous to be a prophet. No ways. Then there were unwilling prophets. Jonah's the classic example. God says, go off to Nineveh. They're a really terrible bunch of people. Go and tell them to repent of their sins. So he gets on a ship and he heads in the opposite direction. They throw him off the ship, swallowed by a big fish, lands up there anyway does his thing, preaches to everybody, then they all repent. And we read in Jonah chapter 4, then Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, isn't this what I told you? That's why I didn't want to go there to Nineveh, because I know you're like this Lord, gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, what kind of a person says stuff like this? A great prophet of God. One of the most successful ones out there. <laughs> you need to stretch. It's 8 o'clock. Not. Okay. Well, all right. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Okay, then there's the whole challenge of false prophecy. Um, false prophecy was a big problem in the Old Testament. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. Because in the same way that they persecuted the prophets that were before you. 
Act 7, when Peter's preaching, he says, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They were false prophets. They were warned against divination, people that would interpret omens or consult a medium. Anybody who's trying to get knowledge from the other side, if it's not through the Lord and His Spirit, there'd be a problem. This, this was forbidden. And they're warned against people practicing divination. Um, let me just jump here to Jeremiah 20 again. So I just want you to see the treatment that Jeremiah got. So the high priest, the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. So there's old Jeremiah, the, the great prophet, like beaten and in the stocks and people ridiculing and mocking him. No wonder Jeremiah's got it in for the false prophets. And Jeremiah 20, 23 onward, it's a whole rant. Well, I mustn't say it's a rant because it's the Lord speaking, but there's a lot of passion there. Talking about these prophets don't listen to what the, the prophets are prophesying. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds. False prophets tended to always tell people that everything was okay. It was always, no, no, everything's going to be fine. God, God loves you. It's all good. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That was the message of the false prophet. The Lord says to Jeremiah, I did not send these prophets, yet they've run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they've prophesied. But if they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And then there's more about prophets prophesying the delusions of their own mind. I had a dream, I had a dream, but it's all just stuff they're, they're making up. And then there's the sarcastic refrain, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what is straw to do with grain and we have to shift out the straw and the grain the straw is false the grain is good and sometimes there's a, a mixture of both the Lord says I'm against the prophets who steal from other words from others words supposedly from me okay so are you are you ready for the hectic stuff now this was just the warm-up Well, 
well, all the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. In other words, that's how you would let everybody know that you're prophesying. You're saying, this is what the Lord is saying, thus saith the Lord. Um, so everybody did that. But sometimes when people said, thus saith the Lord, they were just saying what they dreamt up themselves. But sometimes what they were saying was of God. And in the Old Testament, false prophets were put to death. Um, yeah, there's, there's a verse that says that, I think in, in Exodus. So false prophets were not tolerated. Um, yeah. Okay, so, I, I, yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I wouldn't say prosperity because nobody really experienced prosperity back then unless you were a king. I think most people struggled to make a living and people worked really hard just to survive. So prosperity probably wasn't a thing, but, but the whole idea of, oh no, we, we can sin, uh, God's never going to destroy Jerusalem. Oh, this is, you know, we're like, this is the city of God, you know. So that, that overconfident belief that God's not going to punish us, whatever we do, he'll be gracious to us, that was definitely the dynamics that constantly played out. That's why Jeremiah's getting locked up, because he's saying, guys, like, you know how Israel fell, and, and the northern kingdom is a thing of the past? Well, the same's going to happen to us. So people didn't want to hear that. They're like, no, 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 that, that's never going to happen to us. And the false prophets were saying, even when it came to the exile, the false prophets were saying, yes, we're going to Babylon, but we'll be back in a year. And then the real prophet, Jeremiah, will say, no, uh, get married, plant trees, build a university because you're here for 70 years. So, so there was always that tension. Yeah. Okay, so, right, we're ready for some mind-boggling stories. In fact, this one's so mind-boggling, I don't even know if I should share it, but I alluded to it at the prayer meeting the other day. So let's warm up with this one. Remember I told you about prophetic actions? Well, uh, God caused Ezekiel's wife to die as a prophetic action. Okay, so that definitely rates on the scale of hectic things like off the charts right there. But I share this with you because it's in the Bible and we need to wrestle with this and somehow make sense of it. Ezekiel 24. Okay, so Ezekiel's having his usual quiet time. Lord, what do you want to say to me today? How can I serve you today? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And in the evening, my wife died. The next day I did as I had been 
commanded. And the Lord says, and the message was the prophetic action, just as Ezekiel, you love your wife and now she's gone and you mustn't mourn, the same applies with what I'm going to do with the temple and with Jerusalem. So that's a hectic story, is it not? Verse 24, Ezekiel will be a sign to you and you all will do just as he has done. And in the end, Ezekiel says, so you will be assigned to, the Lord says to Ezekiel, you will be assigned to them and they will know that I am the Lord. So to be quite honest, I've not got my head around this story. So if anybody understands, <laughs> Samantha. Yeah, sort of enforced celibacy. Yeah, no, it it, it is mind blowing. Yeah. Okay, I think how do how were you meant to know? Well, the first thing is you would you would test it against the Mosaic law. For example, if the false prophet saying we'll worship this idol do X, Y, and Z, and it's contrary to God's word, then you knew it was a false prophet. I think there was also a track record of being a prophet. For example, Nathan the prophet, Isaiah, these guys got it right so many times that eventually they came to be recognized as being the genuine thing. Although Jeremiah was getting it right the whole time and they didn't accept him. So, so it was, and Jesus says, you always got it wrong. Was there ever a prophet that you didn't persecute? Um, by the way, there's another story where God told a prophet to marry a prostitute. So that's also a bit of a hectic story. Hosea, um, and the whole idea, again, his life was a sign. Marry a woman and love her, but on the side, she's going to be selling her services and you need to take her back and love her because that is a picture of how I love Israel. Um, so anybody still keen to be a prophet? Do you think it's got easier to be a prophet in the New Testament? Maybe a little easier. Okay, gee, I mean, let, let me end with this story. I was going to end with Balaam. So I might just give you like a, a, like a little few thoughts about Balaam. But let me tell you about a lying prophet and a lion, because this is just another mind-blowing story. Okay, we, we'll end with this one. And then I'll just say a tiny thing or two about Balaam, and then we're done. And then we'll do questions, because I I, it should be some tonight. <clears throat> So this story is found in 1 Kings 13. The word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, a man of God, we don't even know this guy's name, came from Judah to Bethel. 
as Jeroboam, who was the king, was standing by the altar to make an offering. And the prophet cried out against the altar and said, O altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born in the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now are making offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you. Okay, so that's not a prophecy that's going to go down well. You're basically saying, oh, Jeroboam, you're busy doing an offering here. Well, uh, you know, all your priests here are going to get offered up themselves on this altar. Okay, so that didn't go down very well. Um, Verse 4, when King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out, he stretched out his hand and said, seize that man. But the hand he stretched out shriveled up so he couldn't pull it back. Also the altar split apart according to the sign that the prophet had just given. This is exciting stuff, isn't it? Would you say this is a powerful prophet? I mean, to split an altar in half by the power of God, to confront a king to his face, this is good stuff. Then the king said, pray for me that my hand can be restored. So they prayed, and the man's hand was restored. Okay, so he's got a healing ministry as well, in addition to being a prophet. This is good stuff. The king said, come home with me. I'd like to thank you and and give you a meal. The prophet said, no, God has said, "I, I mustn't eat with you. I must go straight home. Okay, so how's that for a nice story? Okay, let me summarize, because of course there's a kicker that's about to come here. This is a genuine prophet of God. This is not some fly-by-night wacko. He's got a radical prophetic message, a powerful miracle, a healing. Oh, the guy, the king also says, hey, I'd like to give you some money. And, and the man of God says, no, I do this for God. Uh, I don't need any money, thank you, which in itself is very impressive. Okay, so now he's heading home because God said you must go straight home. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose son came and told him what the man of God had done. So they said, well, this is amazing. Get this guy over to our place. We want some importation here. Sons, saddle the donkey. Get this guy home. They find him sitting under an oak tree. They say, are you the man of God who came from Judah? Yes, I am. So the prophet said, well, come home and and eat with me. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you. I can't eat your bread. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. Okay, watch this. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house, so that he may eat bread and drink water. In brackets, but he was lying. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. Okay, so now we've got two prophets here. The one prophet's just told a little lie, like, no, 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 God told me, like, you must come to my place, wink, wink. Oh, hands crossed behind the back. While they're eating, 
the spirit of prophecy comes on the old guy and he suddenly realizes, let me read it to you. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who'd brought him back. He cried out to the man of God and said, this is what the Lord says. You've defied the word of the Lord. You've not kept the command the Lord gave you. You came here and ate bread and drank water. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tombs of your fathers. Now, that's one way to end a good meal. Like, I totally lied to you, he's effectively saying. When the man of God finished eating and drinking, the prophet who brought him back saddled a donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. So the lion wasn't attacking the man to eat the body or eat the donkey. It was, it was a divine punishment. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down with the lion standing there, and they told the old prophet. Now the old prophet that's caused all the trouble with his lies, he's super upset. <laughs> So the prophet mourned for him and buried him. He laid the body in his own tomb and they mourned over him and said, Oh, my brother, and when I die, bury me here. So what can we learn from this story? Just because somebody says to you, I heard from God when angel told me to tell you, if God has already spoken to you about something, don't be swayed from what he said. Another thing we learn here is that you can be a true prophet of God and still get things wrong. And we see too that God doesn't tolerate people not obeying what he's told them to do. Um, I could go into Balaam, but you want Balaam? Okay, you want Balaam. Okay. I suppose it's, it's okay, Balaam's very quick, but we, I'll just tell you the story of Balaam. Um, and I had to read the story of Balaam again before I came here tonight because it's, it's so confusing. Okay, but this Balaam character, he's kind of half a true prophet of God, but also half dodgy. Okay, he's kind of a, which is why he's such a crazy character. He's into divination and all the bad stuff, and he's a true prophet every now and again bringing a real word from God. And basically, Israel is threatening um, a nation. Um, the Moabites. So they think, oh, what we need is a prophet. We need to hire a prophet to come and curse, to speak out in faith. Curses on the Israelites. Because that's how people operated back then. You could speak out and the word would, would have an effect. And so they, they hire Balaam and they say, we'll pay you lots of money to come and curse Israel. So Balaam's like, oh, money, I love money. Um, Okay, let me see if I can do that. Um, no promises here, people. 
but I'm happy to come and we'll have some discussions. I'll ask the Lord, see if I can do a bit of cursing for you. Okay, uh, they get there, he comes under the Spirit, he blesses Israel for a bit. Now Balak, the guy who's hired him, is very upset. Oh, this is terrible. Okay, you need to read the whole story yourself. Uh, the story is Numbers 22. Okay, um, so there's this whole thing about he's trying to get money and do what people want him to do, which is curse Israel, but he's got the Lord telling him, no, but I've blessed the people of Israel. You can't curse them. So he's trying to obey God. Yeah, okay, Lord, just give me another, another day. I'll, I'll check again tomorrow if I can curse them. Is that all right? Okay, just what's the, raise the price. So he's kind of negotiating here a bit. Um, and eventually he lands up blessing Israel. Okay, and then he has to clear out. Okay, then it's like, okay, I'm out of here. This is not working out well. You don't have to pay me. And that's when he's trotting on his donkey. He's going home, and suddenly the donkey stops. So Balaam gets out his stick, starts whacking the donkey, kicking the donkey, and eventually the donkey turns a, raises a hoof and says, how dare you beat me, Balaam? I've served you faithfully all these years, and now you want to whip me. And at that point, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in front of him. And the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, again, this is the Howard paraphrase, Balaam, you better thank your donkey for what he did tonight. Because if you'd taken one more step, I would have killed you. That's what the angel of the Lord says to Balaam. And then he went home. And that's the end of the evening. <laughs> Okay, th <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. So that, that's the end of my presentation, but I'm very happy to spend another 15 minutes with those of you that want to stay. It, it probably is half past eight. Oh, it's only 20 past. So I'm going to stay another 15 minutes. Very happy to, to chat about stuff and, and the prophetic, but we're done. Um, who wants to pray for us? Because we need to go out with a blessing. No money involved. Okay, yeah. Okay. Right. God into Christ, but some prophetic activity was, David, you've committed adultery, or let's go to war, or, so it was some localized, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. 
let me pray, and then those of you that have had enough and want to go can go. Lord, uh, we don't want to treat your word lightly, Lord. These are all stories, and you say these things have been written for us, for our benefit, to teach us and to train us, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training. Help us, Lord, to get the message, the principles, the understanding from some of these very strange passages that don't sit well with us. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us a better understanding of who the prophets were, how they functioned, and how you used them. Because, Lord, at the end of the day, we want to be hearing from you and judging rightly between true and false prophecy. So, so bless us with your peace, Lord. Give us understanding and uh, bring us safely home, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.